Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Does the Bible call Jesus God? If so, how many times? This seems like such a straightforward question if you think about it, but it's pretty hard to answer. We'll examine three types of texts in which Jesus might be called God, including those with manuscript issues, translation issues, and interpretation issues. In each case, we'll see that, in fact, the text in question doesn't have to be taken in that way. Here now is part eight of our One God class. Is Jesus called God? Number eight, Jesus called God. We are going to look at several texts that allegedly call Jesus God. Before we do that, I want to just briefly make the case that the New Testament almost always calls the Father God. And uh, we see this very clearly in 1 Timothy 2.5, where it says, For there is one God, there is one God, and then there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. So on the one side here, we have God. And then on the other side, we have humanity, mankind, humans. We are separated. Humanity is separated from God. And so we need a mediator to go between God and humanity, and that's Jesus. Now, Jesus could be God, Jesus could be a God-man, or Jesus could be a human. I mean, right? Like, being a mediator doesn't require any of those categories. You know what being a mediator requires? That you haven't offended either party. If you've offended the humans, then we don't want you as our mediator. If you've offended God, he doesn't want you as, as the mediator. It's a, moral, uh, it's a moral job. It's not a job that requires one kind of substance or another. But yet the verse still says that Jesus belongs to the human side of the fence. Let me read it again. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Or as the NAB translates it, Christ Jesus himself human. Uh, So as it is, in fact, Jesus is one of us, a human being. And I think that's pretty clear. Another another really clear verse is Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Where's Jesus? Here he is. That's Jesus right there, the one Lord. And where's God? God? So Jesus is one Lord, and then God is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So you can see Jesus, in Paul's mind, is separate than the God category who is supreme, one God over all. Now, if the Trinity were true, it should have said, One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are over all. I mean, why couldn't it say that? It could say that if that's what the Bible was trying to teach, but apparently it wasn't trying to teach that. It was trying to teach that there's one God and Father of all who is over all. 
So I think there are just so many of these verses. I haven't mentioned these two yet, so I wanted to mention them here. There's so many of these verses in the New Testament, throughout the Old Testament we already looked at, but also throughout the New Testament that teach there's one God who's over all and that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Lamb, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, all these other titles, Good Shepherd, the Door, and, and the Bread of Life, right? All these different, but, you know, generally speaking, the Father is the only true God in the New Testament. But there are still several verses, arguably, that seem to call Jesus God. And these texts are fraught with problems. And there are three kinds of issues that Deity of Christ verses have that I'd like to cover with you in this session. And I want to look at textual issues, translation issues, and interpretation issues. And maybe that doesn't mean much to you right now, but I will explain as we go. Text relates to the manuscripts. What is the original reading for something? Translation is how you bring it into English. It's a whole different subject. Uh, so textual issues, as far as the New Testament goes, all relates to Greek. Translational issues all relates to how you bring that Greek into English. And then interpretation issues is, all right, you've got it in English. Now, what does it mean? So we're going to look at those three classifications. But before we start, I want you to see that it's not just me saying this. Again, I, I do like to make that point, don't I? Uh, it's not just my wacky idea. It's not like, oh, I don't like these verses because I believe that the Father is the only true God, so I don't like to see verses that call Jesus God, and that's why I'm picking on these verses. Look, it's not like that. Th these verses are difficult. doesn't matter where you're coming from. doesn't matter if you're Catholic, Protestant, or if you belong to a, a Unitarian denomination. You are going to have trouble with these verses. Christopher Kaiser writes, Belief in the deity of Christ has traditionally been the keystone of the doctrine of the Trinity. Yet explicit references to Jesus as God in the New Testament are very few. And even those few are generally plagued with uncertainties of either text or interpretation. Likewise, William Barclay writes, But we shall find that on almost every occasion in the New Testament in which Jesus seems to be called God, there is a problem, either of textual criticism or of translation. In almost every case, we have to discuss which of two readings is to be accepted or which of two possible translations is to be accepted. And then Brian Wright writes, No author of a synoptic gospel explicitly ascribes the title Theos to Jesus. Theos is Greek for God. Jesus never uses the term Theos for himself. No sermon in the book of Acts attributes the title Theos to Jesus. And possibly the biggest problem for the New Testament Christology regarding this topic is that textual variants exist in every potential passage where Jesus is explicitly referred to as Theos. And these three people believe Jesus is God. And they're saying this. So what is going on here? Well, I'm going to show you what's going on. These involve technical issues. Like, these are genuinely technical issues, these collection, this collection of verses. I'm not throwing sand in your eyes. I'm not obfuscating or using an illusion like a magician. Like, these really do have these difficulties. So let's look at the first grouping here of textual verses that have textual issues. I'm going to look at three examples under this heading, three examples under translation issues, and then one example under interpretation. Sound like a plan? All right. First up, 1 Timothy 3.16. 1 
In the King James Version, we read, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, and so on. Whereas in the ESV, 1 Timothy 3.16 reads, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. You see the difference? God and he. Those are two totally different words in English, right? They're not even similar. God and he. So what is going on here? Well, I'm going to show you a picture of an ancient Greek manuscript. This is Codex Sinaiticus from about the year 350 A.D. And we can see uh, very easily, you can spot those two letters there, right? The O and the C is what they look like. In fact, those are Greek letters, and it's the word os, or if you use uh, the Erasmian pronunciation, hos. It, it's, the, it's the word that is translated who, or he who, or in the case of the ESV, they just translate it as he. But then if you look above it, you see the scribe has put in this other symbol, right? And that symbol is uh, like a TH sound and then a S sound. So that's actually the symbol for God that the scribe has inserted above the word for who. So that's in 350 for the, o, the OC the, or the who, right? But then the God is actually from the 12th century. It's a later correction. And they've dated all the different correctors in this manuscript. It's like one of the best studied manuscripts on the planet. So that's 350. It says who in the original. And then... In the year 420, Codex Alexandrinus. So that was 350 for this one, 420. Very similar time periods where these manuscripts come from. 1 Timothy 3.6 again. And here you can see that the word is, and you can see it has a line over it, and that O now has a dot in the middle of it, right? That's pretty clear. Um, so what's going on? Well, this, this will help explain it to you. God or who? The word God, they don't actually write the whole word theos. They just write the first letter and the last letter, and then they put a line on it. Those are nomina sacra, and what they are is abbreviations for special words, like Lord, they just write the first letter and the last letter. God, they write the first letter and the last letter. So you can see how easy it would be for a scribe to go from the left to the right here, from, or from the right to the left, and think, oh, did I see a, like a little line in there? You know, is there a smudge? It's very easy to see how this, this error could occur between these manuscripts. And so this corruption is something that has been corrected in all modern versions. So it's only the really old versions like the King James that will continue to say God was manifested in the flesh. Everything else will say he who or who or he was manifested in the flesh. And if you want more detail on that, see how we got the Bible 11, two corrected corruptions. So I go into lots more depth there if you want to know about that. All right, next one, 1 John 5, 7 to 8. Very similar in the sense that it's a textual issue. You have some manuscripts that contain this highlighted yellow portion and some that do not. It says in 1 John 5, 7 in the King James, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood. And these three agree in one. Whereas the English Standard Version says, for there are three that testify the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree. A little bit shorter. <laughs> so this whole extra part is called the comma Jehanium. I mean, you've you got to give special names to special things, right? 
I mean, what else would the comma Johannaim mean other than this section of added text? Um, and so this is not, this section, this added section is not found in any Greek manuscript prior to the 14th century. And it's been corrected in all modern Greek texts and English translations. It's, but in my opinion, it's, it's, an, it's a smoking gun. The Common Jehanium is the smoking gun of scribal shenanigans. There's no question here. Like, whereas the last one, 1 Timothy 3, 6, you can say, well, maybe the scribe had bad eyesight or had spilled a little ink and gotten confused or maybe thought a previous scribe had made a mistake and there are grammatical reasons for that. But like this one, there's no question. A scribe decided that the Bible didn't teach the Trinity well enough and so he or she inserted this text to teach the Trinity where the Bible did not teach the Trinity. And what's so great about this is that this is a hostile witness. This is somebody who disagrees with me, who is agreeing with me that the Bible is really lousy at teaching the Trinity and needs help. <laughs> okay? I don't agree that the Bible needs help, but we both agree that it's not doing a good job. And uh, so their response was, well, let's fix the Bible. And my response is, let's fix our beliefs to agree with the Bible. All right, a third example is John 1.18. And I've got three versions of it laid out for you here. The ESV says, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The HCSB says, No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, the one who is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. And the NIV reads, no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. So you can see the difference is the ESV is translating this word as, um, or these two words, as the only God. The HCSB is translating it as the one and only Son. Those are two different things, right? The only God and the only Son. And then the NIV double translates it, only Son who is himself God. So we have God, Son, and then the NIV is like, let's just put them all in the kitchen sink, you know, throw everything into the pot and, you know, see what happens. What is, what in the world's going on here? Well, we have this phrase, monounis theos and monounis ios, which is one of a kind or unique, I think is uh, probably the best translation there, God or unique Son. And some manuscripts say one and other manuscripts say another. So what do we do? Uh, Bart Ehrman says the following, It must be acknowledged that the first reading, one and only God, is the one found in the manuscripts that are the oldest and generally considered to be the best, those of the Alexandrian textual family. But it is striking that it is rarely found in manuscripts not associated with Alexandria. Alexandria is a city in Egypt. Could it be a textual variant created by a scribe in Alexandria and popularized there? If so, that would explain why the vast majority of manuscripts from everywhere else have the other reading, Son, in which Jesus is not called the unique God, but the unique Son. There are other reasons for thinking that the latter reading is, in fact, the correct one. The Gospel of John uses the phrase, the unique Son, sometimes mistranslated as the only begotten Son, on several other occasions. See John 3.16 and 18. Nowhere else does it speak of Christ as the unique God. Given the fact that the more common and understandable phrase in the Gospel of John is the unique Son, it appears that that was the text originally written in John 1.18. 
This itself is still a highly exalted view of Christ. It appears, though, that some scribes, probably located in Alexandria, were not content even with this exalted view of Christ, so they made it even more exalted by transforming the text. Now Christ is not merely God's unique son. He is the unique God himself. So that's what Bart Ehrman says. Now I want to give a disclaimer about Bart Ehrman, and that is that he is an extreme liberal scholar. He's an atheist. Well, he'd probably say an agnostic. But he, he comes, and I'm not talking about his politics. I have no interest in his politics. I'm talking about he doesn't believe in God, and he doesn't believe God inspired the Bible, and he doesn't believe the Bible's authoritative, all right? So that's where he's coming from. And yet I still find his reasoning here pretty valid, that when you find a reading in only one location, and everywhere else, and all the other manuscripts from any other part of the world, it says son, just in this one location, which happens to be the same location that had this huge Trinitarian controversy in the 4th century and other controversies before that, that is the very place where this uh, other reading is found. But because I don't trust Bart Ehrman, uh, let's see what his greatest enemy says. Here is Timothy Paul Jones. He literally wrote a whole book disproving the last book I just quoted. So Ehrman's book, New York Times bestseller, Misquoting Jesus, Timothy Paul Jones' book, funny upside-down cover on it, Misquoting Truth. And it's a direct response to Bart Ehrman's book. And this is what Timothy Paul Jones, who is a very conservative Christian academic, has, has dedicated his life to teaching the Bible. This is what he says. He says, this verse, John 1.18, may have originally described Jesus as the one and only Son. Or the text might have read the one and only God. The manuscript witnesses to these two readings are, in my opinion, evenly divided. Do you see that? I just had like a hardcore left-winger and a hardcore right-winger agree that John 1.18 either says son or we're undecided. So I, I think that's pretty strong. That's pretty strong. And uh, as it turns out, the newest Greek critical text that I am aware of, the one that came out in 2017 by Tyndale House, put unique son there in the Greek. So translations based on that are now going to start leaning towards the son, whereas translations based on the uh, Nestle Alon text had God in it, that, that was more favoring the other side. Whatever the truth may end up being on this verse, my point is simply this. Don't base your whole theology on a verse that is uncertain. There is nothing uncertain about 1 Timothy 2.5. Go ahead, look at any Greek text you want. Go ahead, look at any translation you want. There's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. That's just what it says. There's no, there's no controversy about it in, in, the, in this kind of way. Uh, there is no discrepancy on Ephesians 4, 6 that identifies the God and Father as the one who's overall apart from the Lord Jesus. There's, there's no issue there. There's no textual issue. There's no translation issue. There's no interpretation issue. And so it is for these dozens of other verses that we've already considered. So we don't want to use this John 1.18 as a lever to turn over the clearest verses that we have on the subject. Let's move on to the next point, which is translation issues. Yay. All right, translation issues. I want to give three examples. Uh, first up is Acts 20.28. 20, uh, this verse actually also has a textual issue. <laughs> But uh, we're not going to get into that. Let's just grant that it says what it, we read here and not 
delve into the textual issue. Let's just focus on the translation issue. It says in the ESV, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So that's the phrase right here. Church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. That sounds like God's blood. And then Acts 20, 28 in the NET says, Watch out for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God that he obtained with the blood of his own son. <laughs> totally different, right? Church of God, which he obtained with his own blood and the blood of his own son. So what, again, is going on? Well, you can read it as his own blood or blood of his own. In the Greek, it can go either way. So when you bring it into English, the translator has to decide, well, is this talking about God's blood or is this talking about the blood of someone who is God's? Now, a number of translations will translate, and they'll just put the word son in there just for clarity, like the NET, the NRSV, and even the very conservative uh, NICNT, New International Commentary on the New Testament, will also say son is the proper translation for that. But if you did just leave it as God, what, let me ask you this, what is God's blood? God doesn't have blood. <laughs> I mean, it just doesn't make any sense, does it? The only blood God has is the blood of his son, right? I mean, whether you're a Trinitarian, Unitarian, Binitarian, Modalist, Arian, Sabellian, whatever you want to label yourself, God's blood, the only blood God has is the blood of Jesus. So that is, the, I think, a good reason to, to, to hold to the position that this is talking about Jesus and not God's blood. All right, Romans 9, 5 says, to them belong the patriarchs, this is the ESV, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. The NESB 20 says, who is over all, God blessed forever. And the NAB says, God, who is overall, be blessed forever. You see the difference there? So Paul is in this extended discourse on election and God's plans over time, and he's talking about Christ's role in it, and the Jewish role, really, is more his focus here, in God's plan. And then he says, from their race, from the Jewish race, came the Christ. And then does he stop his sentence there, or does he say, who is God overall? Because if Christ is God overall, I've been trying to teach this class one God overall, right? And if Christ is overall, then Christ must be that one God or we're going to have serious problems. What is going on? Well, I really do like the NAB here. The New American Bible is actually the Catholic Bible. Let me show you what they say. Some editors punctuate this verse differently and prefer the translation of whom is Christ, according to the flesh, who is God overall. However, Paul's point is that God, who is overall, aimed to use Israel, which had been entrusted with every privilege in outreach to the entire world through the Messiah. So what the Catholic Study Bible is saying here is that it doesn't really make sense to call Christ God here because the point is not that Christ is God, but that 
through Christ, he was able to reach the world. That contextually, based on just the flow, and we're not going to sit here and read Romans 9 in detail together. Do it on your own. See if you agree that the, based on the flow of the passage, it doesn't make sense to now label Christ as God. Instead, it, it makes sense to uh, have a doxology. That's the technical term for where you suddenly stop in your writing and say, God who is over all, be blessed forever. And that's something that happens in Romans other places as well. So this wouldn't be a unique place. And so that's the question. Should it be a comma here, like these guys have a comma, or should it be a period new sentence? And guess what? Our Greek manuscripts don't have commas and periods. So this is a translator's decision. If the translator thinks it goes one way, then they'll put it one way. And if they think it goes the other way, they'll put it the other way. It's perfectly grammatically ambiguous. It's up to the translator to make that decision. All right, on to the next one, Titus 2.13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Or, once again, the New American Bible, as we await the blessed hope, the appearing, appearance of the glory of the great God and of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you see the difference there? The first one says, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The second one says, the great God and of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So in the one case, Titus 2.13 is calling Christ our great God and Savior. In the other case, it's identifying the glory that comes at the appearance as the glory of our great God and of our Savior. Two different ones involved. Uh, Jason Badoon says the following, those who defend translations that read as if only Jesus is spoken of in both Titus 2.13 and 2 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, attempt to distinguish those two passages from the parallel examples I have given by something called Sharp's Rule. What is Sharp's Rule? I bet it's very sharp, very sophisticated. Just kidding. In 1798, the amateur theologian Granville Sharp, no, it's just this guy's last name. Psst, go figure. In 1798, the amateur theologian Granville Sharp published a book in which he argued that when there are two nouns of the same form joined by and, only the first of which has the article, the nouns are identified as the same thing. Close examination of this much-used quote-unquote rule shows it to be a fiction concocted by a man who had a theological agenda in creating it namely to prove that the verses we are examining in this chapter call Jesus God. So this is what we call circular reasoning. 1798, Granville Sharp says, I want to prove Jesus is God. So he, he coins this grammatical construction rule, and then he applies that rule to prove Jesus is God, that the Bible teaches Jesus is God. It's, it's going in a circle. It doesn't have any persuasive power because his premise is his conclusion. If I say I'm the smartest person and then my, my uh, conclusion is, therefore, I'm the smartest person, I haven't proved anything. I'm just very arrogant, right? So Sharp is not really convincing. And Jason David Badoon in his book, Truth in Translation, uh, takes this on and he does a lot of comparisons because there are similar other constructions where you have two nouns with the word and in between them. And um, he's able to, to show that this is not at all clear cut. It is a translation issue. And as I showed you, we have translations that are not going with this Jesus is God translation here. And that also applies to 2 Peter 1.1 and 2 Thessalonians 1.12. They both have the same 
type of construction. Not exactly the same, but very similar as Titus 2.13. So Titus 2.13, 2 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, 2 Thessalonians 1.12, they're all subject to this construction and they can go two different ways. On to interpretation issues. Interpretation issues. I'm just going to do one example. It's from 1 John chapter 5, verse 20. 1 John 5.20. It says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. The big question is, to whom does the he refer? Does the he refer to what immediately came before it? Or does it refer to him who is true? Those are the two options. So this is not a translation issue. This is not a textual issue. There's no issue with the manuscripts. There's no issue with the translation. The translation is just fine. It's an interpretation issue. Do you take that he at the end of 1 John 5.20 as referring to Jesus? Because if you do, then you have a Jesus is God verse. And if you don't, then you take it as referring to him who is true. Let me uh, show you what John Stott said. John Stott said, the final sentence of verse 20 runs, he is the true God and eternal life. To whom does he refer? Grammatically speaking, it would normally refer to the nearest preceding subject, namely his son, Jesus Christ. If so, this would be the most unequivocal statement of the deity of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Wow, that's quite a statement which the champions of orthodoxy were quick to exploit against the heresy of Arius. Luther and Calvin adopted this view. Certainly it is by no means an impossible interpretation. Nevertheless, the most natural reference is to him who is true. In this way, the three references to the true are to the same person, the Father, and the additional points made in the apparent and final repetition are that it is, it is this one, namely the God made known, by Jesus Christ, who is both the true God and eternal life. As he is both light and love, so is he also life, himself the only source of life and the giver of life in Jesus Christ. The whole verse is strongly reminiscent of John 17, 3. For there, as here, eternal life is defined in terms of knowing God. Now, this is, this is something that's really helpful. 1 John and the Gospel of John are written by the same individual, so you have the same style of writing, the same vocabulary being used. And so we're asking the question, well, he is the true God in eternal life. That's, that's what the phrase said, right? He is the true God in eternal life. We go over to John 17, 3, and we see in John, and he would have already written the Gospel of John prior to reading the Epistle of John. In the Gospel of John, the same person had said, and this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and... Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So it seems to be the point of this verse, John 17, 3, to identify the Father of Jesus as the only true God and as one distinct or separate from Jesus Christ. So look, if you're going to say the Father is the only true God in the Gospel of John and then Jesus is the only true God in the Epistle of John, it's a little confusing, especially with this word only. Just a refresher on how the word only works. Let's take it out of the theology department for a second and put it into just everyday life. This is my only pen, okay? If I say to you, this is my only pen, and then you look 
In my pocket, I have another pen. This is no longer my only pen, right? That I'm lying or deceived, right? That's the way only works, right? That's the way the word only works. So if it says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, we know the you here in John 17, 3 is based on verse 1. Jesus is actually praying to someone else. Jesus is praying to the Father. He says, Father. So we know the you is the Father. And he identifies the Father, or this you here, as the only true God. That means nobody else can be the only true God. That's just what the word only does. So once again, let me show you this. There's a remarkable consistency here. 1 John 5.20. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding so that we may know him who is true. That phrase, him who is true. Why did Jesus come? To help us know him who is true. That fits with a lot of things that we've read in the Gospel of John in this class. And we are in him who is true, in his son Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. If you take this, in his son Jesus Christ, recognizing that that's a prepositional phrase, if you take that as, a, as like an aside, or not as like the main point, then this he is pointing back to him who is true, who has already been identified as true, and now he says he's the true God and eternal life. It fits like a, a hand in a glove. Now, there is also another important verse, but we're not going to have time tonight to get to it. It's John 20, 28, where Thomas says, my Lord, my God. We'll, we'll cover that next time. Uh, but for now, let's review. We examined three types of texts in which Jesus might be called God. Those with textual issues, translational issues, and interpretational issues. Two, Kaiser, Barclay, and Wright explain that these kinds of verses are fraught with problems. We covered three with textual issues. 1 Timothy 3.16, 1 John 5.7, and John 1.18. What we saw on the ones with the textual issues is that there's no question, clear as day, everybody agrees, that one was just wrong and we fixed it. doesn't say Jesus is God anymore. This one was just wrong and we fixed it. It doesn't say Jesus is God anymore. And this one, uh, it's hard to say. John 1.18 is hard to say. I lean towards son and not God, but others disagree on that. Number four, we looked at three translation issues. Acts 20.28, 20, the blood of his own or his own blood. Translation could go either way. Romans 9, 5, do you put a period there or a comma? If it's a comma, you're calling Jesus God. If it's a period, you're praising God because you're so overwhelmed by how amazing it is what he's done through Jesus. And then Titus 2, 13, where you have our God and Savior or God and our Savior. Could go either way. Those are translation issues. Uh, number five, we consider one interpretation issue. 1 John 5, 20, the text is clear. The translation is perfect. Doesn't matter what version you look at. It probably, they all more or less say the same thing, uh, unless it's a real like thought for thought translation where they just want to tell you what they think it means. Uh, but most translations are going to say the same thing. And, you know, it's really up to the reader to decide what is this referring back to. And number six, we conclude that none of these texts clearly teach that Jesus is God. There is no clear text here. Every one of them is fraught with problems, whether of text, of translation, or interpretation. And so you don't want to build your theological house on the sand, right? You want to build it on the rock. What is the rock? The rock that is clear is 
all of the other verses that talk about who God is, that God is one, or who Jesus is, where he says over and over and over again, I don't even, I'm not, this is not about me. I didn't come on my own initiative. I'm not doing the works. It's the Father that's doing them through me. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. That's clear. There's no textual issue on that verse. There's no translation issue on that verse. You know, you can argue an interpretation issue on any verse, so I'll have to respect that. But I think we want to interpret the unclear in light of the clear. Now, having said all that, let's assume that all of these verses really do teach that Jesus is God. Let's assume that. Okay? Uh, assuming that, let's see, how many verses did we just cover? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Let's throw in 2 Peter 1.1 1, 1 and uh, 2 Thessalonians 1.12. So let's say nine verses. We'll give you Hebrews 1.8 and John 20.28. 20, let's call it 11. Max it out. 11. What, do you, what else do you want? John 8.58? Make it 12. An even dozen. Let's say 12 times the New Testament calls Jesus God. Let's say 12 times. Do you know how many times the word God is used in the New Testament? I mentioned it last time. Over 1,300 times. 1,300, more than that, times. So you've got 12 times to 1,300 times that it refers to the Father. That sounds to me like the point of the New Testament is not that Jesus is God. <laughs> if the point, if, I mean, if that was the point, then it's just like not doing a good job teaching the point. Right? Now think about the Old Testament for a second. We saw the angels were called God two or three times. We saw the judges were called God three or four times. We saw Moses was called God twice. We saw uh, the king called God in Psalm 45 and Psalm 82. You know, roughly 12 times, give or take. So, like, even if Jesus is called God, I'm not, I don't think he is. I'm just saying, like, even, like, worst case scenario, he is called God all these times. And I'm wrong about everything it still would fit with that, that rare secondary sense of a human being who represents God and is empowered by God and therefore is called God in that secondary sense. So next time we're going to look at Christ's death and resurrection. And I think those are really important events for Christianity in general, but especially for understanding his identity and his relationship with God as we continue through our class, One God Overall. Well, that's it for this episode. What'd you think? Come on over to restitutio.org and find episode 418, Jesus Called God, question mark, and leave your questions and thoughts there. We'd love to hear what you have to say. In light of that, from our last episode, someone named Alan wrote in, Isaiah 63, 9, which states, And the angel of his presence saved them. Who is the angel of his presence? Well, Alan, that's a good question. I don't know who the angel of his presence is. Uh, presumably, there are quite a few angels that have access to the presence of God. When we read in Isaiah 6, there are the seraphim who are in God's presence. In Revelation 4, uh, they're called living creatures. In Ezekiel, they're called cherubim. And maybe there are other angelic beings that are in God's presence. Uh, whoever it was, this is an angel that God sent to save the people at this time, mentioned in Isaiah 63. Sorry, I couldn't be more specific than that. I think the idea that this 
somehow refers to Jesus is just a total non sequitur. It doesn't, doesn't at all follow from the text itself. It has to be read into it. Dustin wrote in saying, Sean, I really appreciate the content that you put out on this subject. Your work has been a tremendous resource during a very difficult time for our group. There is one question that I would love to get your take on that you sort of touched on during this episode. The question is, is Jesus God? Which eventually leads to how many gods are there? This is a very challenging conversation to navigate. I suppose you could really condense these questions down to one. If Jesus is God and the Father is obviously God, how can we say there is one God? I know what my take is on the subject, but I'm interested to hear yours. May God bless you, your family, and your ministry. Thanks for writing in, Dustin. Appreciate your thoughts on this. Is there one God? In the sense of the ultimate supreme God, who is overall, yes, there is one God. That is pretty clear from the statement of Jesus in John 17, 3 where he says, this is eternal life to know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So the only true God, if you want to use that biblical terminology, solely refers to the Father and not to the Son. Now the Son can be called God because he stands in for God, he represents God just like the judges of Israel did before him or the king of Psalm 45. But it's not like they're another God apart from the one true God. They are the one true God in action through an intermediary, a representative, an agent who is carrying out his will. So hopefully that helps to answer the question. Now on the question, is there really only one God? I I would have to say definitely not uh, because there are other creatures that are called gods in the Bible, uh, namely angels, as far as Psalm 8 is concerned. The angels are called gods, Elohim, gods. And so is Satan. Satan is called, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the god of this age. So, and, and maybe you could make the case that Jesus, in his glorified state, is a lowercase g, God, in the sense that he's he has capabilities, powers, and authority beyond normal human beings. So this would be a case for the lowercase g designation for God because Jesus is currently living in a spiritual sense in another dimension or however you want to think about it, but he's not living on earth like a normal human being would be. Uh, So maybe you could call him God in that sense. I don't see the Bible ever doing that, so I I would hesitate, but that there are other gods and other powers and authorities and the divine counsel and all that, there's no question. The Bible attests to that very clearly in Psalm 8, but also Psalm 82 and a number of other places where it talks about angels or spiritual powers or Satan himself. So when it comes to the question is that how many great supreme deities are there, I would say there's just one, Yahweh who's the one God overall. But there are other spiritual entities and powers and forces and authorities and principalities and so on. Uh, And I I think it's totally fine to use a lowercase g designation, God, to refer to them. And I don't think that in any way threatens 
the monotheism or supremacy of the one true God who is overall. Thanks for writing in. I'd love to hear back from you if you have any further thoughts on this question. It is an interesting question. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for tuning in, everyone, listening here to the end. If you'd like to support Restitutio, you can do that at our website, restitutio.org. We'll see you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.